0: Well, if you'll take your copy of the Bible and uh, turn to Luke chapter 1, our uh, sermon today will be from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. And uh, if you're using the Bible in your seat, this is on page 856 uh, in the Bible. Uh, My name is Stephen Story. I serve as the executive pastor here and have the privilege of leading us now as we continue in our sermon series through Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, Bobby read for us earlier the larger section here, And uh, we'll be focusing our time now on uh, the section that's probably labeled in your Bible as Zechariah's Song or Zechariah's Prophecy, chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. Well, Christmas is one week from today, and Christmas last occurred on a Sunday six years ago in the year 2016, and I read this week, uh, I didn't double-check this, I think this is right, that it will next fall on a Sunday in the year 2033 11 years from now. I don't know how that works. I think it has something to do with leap years, uh, but uh, the next opportunity for us to worship together on Sunday morning uh, as uh, Christians together on Christmas Day will be 11 years from now. So, fairly unique opportunity that we have to begin our Christmas Day celebrations uh, by gathering as a church. It may not fit with your family traditions and your normal Christmas customs, but I just want to encourage you to think about what a unique opportunity this is together with the church on the day that we celebrate the birth of our Savior. Uh, especially if you've got kids in your home, think about what an opportunity to uh, teach them and to shepherd them and how to think about Christmas and how to think about the importance of the local church. Uh, it's maybe the last chance you have to worship with your kids on Christmas Day uh, while they are in your home. Uh, Eleven years from now will be the next opportunity. So if you're in town, uh, let's plan together as a church family at 10 30 next Sunday morning and worship the Lord together. Well, if you think about it, the events that we celebrate at Christmas are events that require some explanation. So you just look down at your Bible, uh, the end of the section that Bobby read for us earlier, Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 7, and you you find there Luke's narrative of the birth of Christ. Now, if that's the only thing that you know about Christmas, if that's the only a uh, thing that you consider from the Bible, uh, just try to imagine what Christmas would seem like. If those seven verses were all that we knew about the birth of Jesus, we'd see a story that is beautifully humble, it's not, simp- or it's not dramatic, it's very simple, and uh, it would be interesting maybe only because there's an unmarried woman who's pregnant and her baby winds up sleeping in a food trough. And apart from that, you would read this and think, well, what's the big deal? Why, why, is, this, why is this such a big deal? Uh, this celebration of Christmas. Well, we know that behind the cosmic veil, there is so much going on at the birth of Jesus. So much more than is readily apparent just from those seven verses. And so, if you take the scriptures as a whole and you put them on like a pair of glasses, you're you're suddenly able to see uh, the full beauty and the astounding nature of what is happening at the birth of Jesus. And Zechariah's song serves us in this way. Uh, Just in this this short section, Zechariah's song, uh, it's a a section that helps us to rightly understand what is happening at the birth of Christ and why it is such a big deal. Zechariah's song enables us to understand why Christmas is such a big deal. Now, in the the opening chapter of Luke up to this point, Zechariah has not been really one of the impressive characters in the story, right? Right. Uh, We do know from uh, back in verses 5 through 7 that Zechariah is a priest. He's the husband of Elizabeth. He's described there as a godly man. Nevertheless, up to this point in the story, uh, Zechariah is most notable for the manner in which he doubted God. The angel Gabriel visited him, told him that his barren wife would give birth to a son in her old age, and Zechariah was not convinced. And so the angel told him because of his unbelief, he would be unable to speak until the child was born. Nevertheless, God is gracious to Zechariah. In verse 64, we read that nine months later after the baby is born and given the name John as the angel had instructed, it says immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. In Zechariah's speech at this point, Is no ordinary speech. He went from months of absolute silence, not a word from his mouth, to now in verse 67, he is filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Far from his unbelief and his questioning of God's messenger nine months earlier, Zechariah is now a mouthpiece for the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will give us a glimpse into the cosmic significance. Of what is about to happen in the birth of Jesus. In Zechariah's prophecy today, we'll see at least three reasons why the birth of Christ, why Christmas is so significant. This will be our simple outline for today. First of all, Christmas shows us that God has kept His promises. Second, Christmas shows us that we are freed to serve God. And then third, Christmas shows us the tender mercy of God. So first, Christmas shows us that God has kept His promises. Look down at verses 67 through 73, and I'll read these for us. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, "'Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old.'" That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Zechariah is praising not just any God, not God in the abstract, but he is praising the Lord, God of Israel. And similar to what Pastor John showed us last week in Mary's song of praise, Zechariah speaks in the past tense about something that has yet to reach its fulfillment. He says that God has visited and redeemed His, speak, His people. Zechariah is speaking prophetically about the approaching birth of Jesus. And he's so sure that it will happen and that it will accomplish God's eternal purpose, that He speaks of it as having already been accomplished. Now, I'll give you a heads up. Zechariah's words here are pulling on threads that are connected all over the Bible. And this is on purpose. The Holy Spirit, through Zechariah, is bringing together a lot of different uh, themes and many different passages of Scripture and I'll point out just some of them today. You're welcome to turn to these with me, uh, but you may do just as well to make a note of the passages we're going to and jot them down so you can study them later. Uh, So with that in mind, notice how Zechariah is calling to mind in the coming birth of Jesus, this won't be the first time that God has visited his people. He's thinking back specifically to the Exodus from Egypt. So back in Exodus chapter 2, we read about the people of Israel. At this point, they were enslaved in Egypt. Exodus 2.23, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. The story goes on. God raises up Moses. He calls him out as the one to lead Israel. Uh, he calls Aaron as the one to assist him. And God gives them miraculous signs to demonstrate God's power and his nearness. And then Exodus 4:29 says, Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the peoples uh, of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. See, even thinking back in their history for God's chosen people, His visitation, His drawing near results in their deliverance. Consider the manner in which God visits His people. He shows up personally. He shows up powerfully He takes on Himself the the problems and the burdens in which His people are ensnared, and then He leads His people out to new life and victory. In the Exodus, God surrounded His people with protection. He led them visibly with a, a pillar of cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. He parted the sea so they could walk through on dry ground, and He destroyed Egypt's army when they tried to pursue. When God visits His people... It means that salvation has arrived. So we go back to Zechariah and consider where Israel is at this point in her history. It's been hundreds of years since Israel had heard from God. They've been conquered by the Romans. No new revelation, no new prophecy from God. And there's the temptation for them to start to think that maybe God has abandoned his people. Maybe he's forgotten them. Maybe he's just given up on them. But now, in Jesus, God will once again visit his people. Over in Luke chapter 7, there's the account of Jesus raising from the dead the son of a widow in a town called Nain. Jesus has compassion on this widow. Uh, Her only son has died, and so Jesus raises him from the dead. And the reaction of the people is, Uh, is insightful. Luke 7, 16, it says, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. God has visited his people before, and now he is visiting them in this climactic way, in the incarnation of his son, Jesus. And here's one thing we can't overlook, is that this was God's plan all along. It's not as if God had made multiple attempts to save Israel, and each attempt failed, and he's like, well, I don't know what else to do, so I guess now I'll send Jesus. No, this, is, this has been God's plan all along. God had made covenant promises to his people. He had promised them that he would one day come to redeem them, and now he's making good on those promises. Verse 69, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 69, points out that this coming salvation would happen in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Jesus, about to be born, is the king that was promised in the covenant God made with David. That covenant is recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And again in 1 Chronicles 17. And in that covenant, God promised David that he would raise up another king after David, one of David's descendants, whose kingdom would be established forever. Those promises made to David hundreds of years before are now about to be fulfilled. This this theme of Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is all through Luke's writing. In Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus himself claims to be fulfilling prophecy. In that passage, Jesus is uh, in a synagogue teaching. He stands up and reads from Isaiah, and he concludes by saying, Today, this Scripture has been fulfilled in your, in your hearing. Uh, or at the end of the book, in Luke chapter 24, it's the evening of Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus is talking to the disciples as they walk on the road to Emmaus. Luke 24, 27 says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... Jesus interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Or in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, the apostles regularly seek to persuade people to follow Christ by demonstrating how He is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. God kept His many promises to His people ultimately and especially in the uh, the person of Jesus Himself. Friends, this is one of the simple lessons of Christmas, is that God keeps His promises. When He says He will do something, He does it. And specifically as it relates to the salvation of His people, we need to understand that God will accomplish what He set out to do. God planned the salvation of His people from eternity past. He told beforehand the contours of what He would do, and then He did it. Christ is the pinnacle of his work of redemption. And his success in that redemption is so certain that Zechariah can speak of what God will do through Jesus in the past tense. Jesus is the very Word of God, and every Word of God proves true. Just consider what a joy that we serve a God who can be trusted. We don't have to hope that he will keep his word. We don't have to get by knowing that he'll keep his word most of the time. We don't have to cajole him and prompt him to follow through on what he said he would do. This is why we take so seriously the, the reading and the study of God's word because this is how God has spoken to us. God has spoken to us in the Bible that you hold in your hands. And in that Bible, he has told us things that he will do, he has made promises. He has instructed us. When we read the words that God has spoken, written in the Bible, we can be absolutely certain that what He has said will come to pass. We don't have to hope that our sins will be forgiven. If we've trusted in Christ, Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. God's truthfulness, the the unchanging nature of His Word is what secures our salvation. Isaiah 55 11 says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Christian, you may be tempted to worry sometimes that your salvation is on shaky ground, that somehow you won't make it to the end and at the end God will reject you and your salvation will be lost. But Christmas shows us that our God is a God who keeps His promises. Let the sure and solid nature of God's unchanging Word give you confidence that your salvation has been secured in Christ. Zechariah's prophecy here shows us a second reason why Christmas is so significant. Christmas shows us that we are freed to serve Christ. God. Look at verses 71 through 75. So, what's the outcome of God visiting and redeeming his people? Verse 71 That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Because God has visited His people, God's people will be saved from their enemies, and God's visitation means that they are saved in order to serve Him. Now, if you're a Jew in first century Israel, one of the issues that comes up at this point is the question of political and military salvation versus the idea of spiritual and Eternal salvation. So, will the promised Messiah, when he comes, will he rescue us from our Roman oppressors, kind of like he delivered us from slavery in Egypt in the past? Or will the Messiah's salvation be more spiritual in nature? And many Jews, it seems, assumed that it would be the former of those two. Most of Israel seemed to expect that their Messiah would establish an earthly kingdom that would triumph over their Roman occupiers. And it's easy for us to look back and kind of criticize Israel for this a little bit because it's so obvious now uh, with the revelation of Scripture what God's plan was. But if you think about it, this was not really an unreasonable assumption for them to make at some level. God had famously visited Israel before, as we noted in the Exodus. And at that point, his salvation was marked especially by physical deliverance. And it looked like political salvation. The people were rescued from slavery brought into uh, physical and political and economic and religious freedom as they were given their own land. So as Israel again finds herself suffering oppression, this time at the hands of the Romans, it's not totally unreasonable for them to expect that God's uh, deliverance might mean earthly freedom like it did before. One commentator points out that trying to understand God's salvation of his people as either political or spiritual is a little bit simplistic. Uh, He points out that Israel was oppressed by the Romans because of their sin, and therefore they needed both spiritual and political deliverance. In the Exodus, physical deliverance was evident for all to see, and spiritual deliverance was intertwined, but in many ways it was still a future hope. Now in the person of Jesus, we'll see that spiritual deliverance, the greater deliverance really will come first and the establishment of a visible earthly kingdom remains a future hope that will be fulfilled in the age to come. And so Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, points to the reality that this time God's visitation will bring a salvation that's at a whole other level than what they had experienced before. And notice this, why does God save his people from their enemies. Certainly, in part, it's simply because God is kind and merciful and loves to come to the defense of His people. Ultimately, however, the reason that God visits and redeems His people is so that, verse 74, they might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness all their days. So from the beginning, God had purposed to save a people for himself. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christian, God didn't save you so that you can be forgiven of your sins and now be back to some kind of a neutral state where you've been forgiven but have Uh, No other purpose or direction. No, it's much more than that. God saved you to bring you near to Himself. And God saved you so that you can joyfully serve Him. This is taught really beautiful uh, in a section in Isaiah chapter 43. Uh, Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 7. This is a little bit longer section, but I just want to read this for us. And uh, you can just listen as I read Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west, I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Christian, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. God saved you to be with Him and to serve Him. One of the great desires of the human heart is to belong, to be loved, to have purpose and settledness and a place. Augustine of Hippo famously wrote, "'You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in You.'" If you are not a Christian, if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for your salvation, do you feel in yourself an unsettledness, a restlessness, maybe a longing in the sense that you've yet to discover the purpose of life itself? Just consider that perhaps you're longing for something that can only be found in God himself. So turn to Him today. Repent and believe. Determine to spend the rest of your life serving God in joy and gladness. It's what He designed His people to do. Zechariah goes on to say that not only are God's people saved to serve Him, but they are saved to serve Him, verse 74, without fear and holiness and righteousness. Think about that, the idea of serving God without fear. This is how God intended for His people to live with Him. This is the way it was originally before sin entered the world. God created His people to live openly, freely, and without fear in holiness and righteousness in His presence. But there came a day when that was no longer possible. What did Adam say after he disobeyed God, after he sinned, and God came to the garden and He called out to Adam, where are you? What did Adam say? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, and I hid myself. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says that Jesus came so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Our own sin introduces into our hearts a fear of our Creator. It's a tragic fear because it's not the way things are supposed to be, that God's own people would be afraid of Him. But it's an understandable and it's a right fear because evil cannot dwell with God. Our sin causes us to be fearful of the God for whom we were made and fearful of the death that is the final consequence of our sin. And so Jesus came to free us. Because of Jesus, we're no longer shamefully hiding with Adam from the very God who created us. We're no longer paralyzed by the fear of our own impending death. No, because of Jesus, we're now able to joyfully run to God Himself. Rather than hiding from God in fear, we can now hide in God through Christ. What does the hymn say? No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. Friend, if you are laboring under the burden of your own sin, your own failure, if you feel crushed and weighed down, just know this morning, this is one massive reason that the birth of Christ is such good news for you. Jesus was born to deliver you from the hand of your enemies, including the greatest enemy, death. Death is inevitably coming for you, for all of us. And Christ came to free you from it. And he's freed you so that you can serve him without fear. This brings us to our third and final reason why the birth of Jesus at Christmas is so significant. Christmas shows us the tender mercy of God. Look at verses 76 through 79. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. One of the interesting observations we can make about Zechariah's prophecy is that John the Baptist isn't even mentioned until you near the end of these words that Zechariah spoke. Now, remember, uh, this is, uh, these are the things that Zechariah is saying on the occasion of the birth of his own son, John. Now, it would seem appropriate for him to start by praising God for the birth of his own son, but that's not how this passage reads. Rather, Zechariah starts by praising God because he has kept his covenant promises and has visited his people in the upcoming birth of another child, Jesus. Zechariah sees the, the salvation soon to be brought by Jesus as being bigger news than the birth of his own son. And it's fitting because later on, John is the one who will beautifully proclaim that he must increase but I must decrease. Even from the time of his birth, John is happily living in the shadow of the one who is greater than him. But Zechariah does now turn, verse 76, to consider the special role that his son John will play. John will be called the prophet of the Most High. You might think of him as being uh, the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets who has a very particular job to prepare people for the coming ministry of the Messiah. And how will he do this? According to verse 77, he will do it by giving knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So at least in part, this seems to mean that John, John's ministry was to turn people's attention away from the idea that the Messiah would offer military or political deliverance and instead focus them on the far greater reality that the Messiah would bring the forgiveness of sins. So, over in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, for instance, we see that John went into all the regions around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. J- John's ministry was to turn people's attention to the reality that what they needed was not earthly salvation, what they needed was to be made right with God. By having their sins forgiven people needed to have this pointed out to them and John's ministry was to help them see that their real need was not some outward temporal salvation John's work was to help people see that what they really needed was to be made right with God by having their sins forgiven this is a message we need to hear as well is it not We can look backwards in time at the people in the Bible, and it seems obvious to us. Of course, they needed to be forgiven of their sins and made right with God. But it's not so obvious to us in the moment as we live our own lives, is it? If you just ask the average person, what is your biggest need? What kind of answers are you likely to get? If I could just get out of debt. If I could just find a wife or... My husband would just love me or my kids would just obey for once. If I could just get over this illness and get back to health. If we could just win the next election. Increasingly, some will say, if I can just have my sexual desires fulfilled, maybe if I were a different gender, then life would be good and all would be right with the world. Apart from the salvation brought to us by Christ, this is how we think. We all sense that something's not quite right. We know things ought to be better than what we so often experience. And apart from God, we we set about looking for salvation in every place imaginable except for the one place that is ultimate. We need to hear the message that John the Baptist would proclaim. We need to have our hearts turned toward a message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins we need to be reconciled with God. And consider how even in that message we can see the tender mercy of our God. God could have left us stumbling around, confused about what our greatest need is, but He didn't do that. In His kindness, He revealed to us that our greatest need is to be reunited with Him Look at the last part now, verse 78. It says, The sunrise shall visit us from on high. This is an expression of hope. God's visitation will mark the dawn of a new day. It's an echo of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Look at the next phrase. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. The shadow of death. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Who is with us in the shadow of death? It's none other than Jesus Himself. To guide our feet in the way of peace. We think of Isaiah 59, which says that the sins of God's people have made a separation between them and their God. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their path. God could have left His people floundering in this helpless state, but in His tender mercy, He Himself will guide their feet. He will plant their feet firmly on the path in the way of peace. Friends, as Christmas draws near, realize that God's plan has always been salvation for His people. And in Christmas, in the birth of Jesus, that plan is soon to come into full bloom. And that plan is characterized by tender mercy. If we want to know what God's mercy looks like, all we have to do is look at Jesus Himself. He is the image of the invisible God. And so when we look at Him, we see concretely what God is like. God's mercy is on display in places like Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus offers an invitation. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Church, let's praise God for His tender mercy towards us, and let's seek to be a people who imitate this attribute of our God. There are a lot of things that are commonplace in the the time and place where we live, but tender mercy is not one of them. If you want to stand out from the crowd, if you want people to see and savor just a bit of what Jesus is like, then consider how you can be an echo of His tender mercy towards you. Husbands and fathers, how can you show Christ-like tender mercy towards your wife and your kids? Managers, supervisors, business owners, how can you manage your employees well and also show mercy and kindness towards those entrusted to your oversight? Christian, how can you show mercy to a fellow believer who has wronged you or whom you know is suffering through a difficult season of life. Church, we treasure the gospel, and that gospel reveals to us a God who is overflowing with loving kindness towards His people. So let's allow that to shape us into a church that is a reflection of Jesus. Let's allow that to propel us outward with a heart of mercy towards those who have never experienced the tender mercies of our God. If you've not trusted in Christ, take note of the God we are talking about and what he is truly like. Because you've almost certainly been fed a lie that God is not like what we are describing today. There's a pull in our rebellious world for you to exalt yourself, for you to throw off any restraint that would hold you back. There's the the lie that the Christian God would only tie you down and hold you back from living out your truth. But no, consider what God's word has described for us today a God of tender mercy. He's being patient with you. He doesn't want you to perish, He wants you to come to Him in repentance. Well, Christmas is a week away, and this coming week we'll likely experience Christmas and all that it brings in many different ways. Maybe it will mean a frantic pace, maybe it will mean a nice, quiet break. For some, it will mean the joy of family and friends. For others, it will mean the pain and the brokenness of family and friends. But Zechariah's song of praise would also have us to see this week that God has kept his promises. He will yet keep his promises. Rejoice in that. Hope in that. Christians, consider this week that because of Jesus' birth, you have been freed, not to live for yourself, but to live for God. How might you serve Him even through the highs and the lows of this coming week? And finally, be reminded this week that Christmas reveals to us the tender mercy of our King. He has come once, and He will come again. Let's pray together. Father, we praise You for the gift of Your Word. We praise You for the salvation that is revealed to us within its pages. We thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, for your people, for whom they waited so long. We thank you that he has now come. We pray that we would find our rest, our hope in him. We pray in his name. Amen.